Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro. Today, I not only have a guest, but I have a very dear friend, Gerard Schwartz. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Michael. Nice to see you. Great to see you. And I have to say that, you know, when you say the the words Gerard Schwartz, um, it's an astonishing situation because you, are, apart from being, I shouldn't say apart, because you're a wonderful father and grandfather. I know that <laughs> from our many conversations. And that's where I start. And the Menschlichkeit of Gerard Schwartz is unparalleled in my book. But I first met you when you were playing trumpet in the American Symphony Orchestra under Stokey through Ellie Siegmeister years ago. I think it was Carnegie Hall. And then the New York Philharmonic as a, as a principal trumpet. Then this astonishing career as a conductor, an astonishing career as a composer and arranger, an astonishing career that goes beyond tomorrow with our wonderful Gerard Schwartz and also your great work with the Milken Archive, which is we'll get to. Jerry, you're also a wonderful writer because you write like you speak, which is very personal and very direct. So I've read your two wonderful new articles in Gramophone magazine about the emigre composers, the ones who fled, you know, the Hitler time, and then the Americans who you championed, like many of my mentors, all of whom I knew personally, especially David Diamond, who, of whom we've spoken with great affection, and characterization over the years. In any event, if we could divide this conversation up as quickly as we can with many people to mention, starting with the Americans and then going to the emigres, if we could. You know, under the Americans, you talk about the unjustly neglected, and I completely agree with you, American Symphony. There was a time, and Bill, Schum Bill Schumann was obviously one of the major voices in that, of establishing an American voice in the symphonic realm, brought on a lot by Kusevitsky and Stokey in the, in the old days, and Reiner and Sal and so forth. So speak to this. What attracted you in being the Kusevitsky of our time, I might say? And over I, wish I, I wish I were the Kusevitsky of our time. I You're mean, more. What you, accomplished with the Boston Symphony for American Music was extraordinary. You think but what you've accomplished is extraordinary, too. There are 300 Gerard Schwartz recordings, many with the Seattle Symphony and with the Royal Film, uh, uh, Liverpool Philharmonic, I believe. Talk about the Great American Symphony and why. Well, when I was growing up, uh, my parents were medical doctors from Vienna. And when it became obvious that I wanted to be a musician and not a doctor, my father decided, well, I... I'd better be as highly educated a musician as possible. And as a youngster, I played the piano, of course, and the trumpet, and I composed. And, and, and so he said, well, I'm going to get you a composition teacher. Long story, which I won't go into now, he found Paul Creston for me, and he became my composition teacher from the time I was a freshman in high school. Amazing. And, uh, and then, of course, my emphasis was not in composition or in piano, but on the trumpet. And as, as a, a, a trumpet player, the repertoire you have, aside from orchestral repertoire, uh, solo repertoire, you practice as a kid. Of course, I practiced all the excerpts and all of that. But the solo repertoire is Baroque music or new music. 
There's not much in between, a few pieces here and there. Um, and so uh, I became very interested in, in new music. I had a wonderful teacher. My, my main teacher was Bill Vacchiano, who was the first trumpet of the New York Philharmonic. Astonishing before. player. Uh, but before that, I had a wonderful teacher named Ronald Anderson. And Ronnie was a member of the American Brass Quintet, and he was a champion of new music. And he, he could play this stuff. It's unbelievable what he could do on the trumpet. And so he was a great influence on me, again, when I was in junior high school into my uh, early, early high school years. And so I had all these influences. Uh, and I, I mean, I really wasn't conscious of how uh, unusual that might be. I wasn't even conscious of how uh, some of these great Americans were not as well thought of or well known or properly represented as others. It was just, this is what I did. And so it became very natural for me. And you studied with Giuseppe Guttoreggio. Otherwise known as <laughs> Paul Creston. There are people astound. It's astounding to me, having grown up with the name Paul Creston, who was one of the most performed American composers, no question of his generation. Every major conductor, I think even Cantelli. I mean, everyone, Reiner, everybody. They all conducted his music, and he was known as a great craftsman and also a very passionate type. And an opinionated kind of guy. So talk a little about your personal experiences with him. What, what did you exactly study with him? And who was Paul Creston as a man? Well, uh, I'll never forget my first. And I brought in a trumpet concerto I'd written for trumpet and band. And he sat there at the, at the piano. And he, he went through it. And, uh, and then when it was over, basically what he said to me is, okay, for next lesson, write 50 melodies. That was how it began. Uh, and then it was 100 melodies. And then it was a discussion of harmony. And then it was a discussion of fugue. Then it was a discussion of form. Uh, and rhythm was a big deal for him. And, uh, and, and yes, he was extremely opinionated. He was certainly not a fan of the, the, the serial music that was, had become in fashion. He wasn't even a fan of Gustav Mahler, who became very much in fashion. Yeah. And, and uh, yes, his music was played by all of the great conductors at the time. He wasn't like David Diamond was. David Diamond was a warm and fuzzy guy. I mean, he was just uh, hard on the sleeve, wonderful human being. Uh, difficult at times. Don't get rid of him. Crest was a much, uh, much more austere kind of person. Not that he wasn't friendly. He was very friendly. But it was very much get the work done. I came into my lessons. It wasn't, how are you today, Jerry? You know, what's going on in your life? Nothing of that. It was all how about- How long were you with Creston? How many uh, years? Three years. Three years. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a fundamental training like I got with Siegmeister, which is amazing. It lasts your entire life. Yeah. And Siegmeister is another composer uh, who wrote some wonderful- I remember recording a brass sextet of his- that was just fabulous. And I knew him, of course. Uh, uh, and wonderful. That's how I met you. <laughs> never played. Never played. I mean, I mean, okay. Sigmeister may not have been William Schumann or David Diamond, but he certainly wrote wonderful music. And also Tuscanini, Stokowski, Metropolis all performed his music as well as Commissiona later and Lauren Mazel. I mean, it's not like sure. he wasn't getting it out there. And a lot of the other conductors of the time... But again, he's one of that group. And Ellie had a, the issue of the Red Scare when he was blacklisted. 
you know, in the 50s. So that was a whole nother ball of wax. You have conducted the Third Symphony. I know that you love that of Creston, the so-called mysterious one, right? Would you talk about that very briefly, please? Well, when I was writing the article for Gramophone, they, I must say, are brilliant and quite wonderful. And, and, And they said, we'd like you to write an article about the forgotten American symphonists, but they didn't want a... Uh, a, a, an article where I would name every composer, don't just name all, I, we don't, that, that's not important to us. What's important to us is that you pick four or five pieces that you think are underrepresented or unknown and talk about those pieces and those composers. Uh, it, of course, how can you do that? On the one hand, you know, we got a lot of mail that said, well, what about this one? What about that one? What about Roy Harris? Of course, naturally. Uh, this wasn't about, this wasn't a, a, a hodgepodge of naming all the composers I could possibly think of, but rather five pieces that I thought should be played regularly by major orchestras. Again, even a piece of Alan Hovannis that I had uh, talked about, Mysterious Mountain, which is played a lot by high school and college groups, is almost never played by professional orchestras. I remember when I did it with the All-Stars, all these members of Boston and, uh, right. and, and Philadelphia, they said, how come we've never heard this piece? And many That's of them crazy. have never heard of Hovannis. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Crazy. I heard Stokowski do it live. I'll never forget it. And I met Hovannis backstage with Stokey once. An incredible thing. When I when I saw uh, Hovannis coming towards Stokowski, Stokowski stopped. And, you know, the... The waves parted, and he said, "Mr. Hovannis." <laughs> Everybody kowtowed. It was really quite a moment. But the mysterious mountain, which Reiner recorded and made Alan Hovannis very well known at that time, is astonishing. And then you recorded it, Twice. which is and a great recording. And then you know, and then you did it again. You did it with Seattle, and then you did it with NBC. I'm saying NBC with your All Star group and All Star. Um, yeah. I once had a conversation with William Schumann, which was very interesting, young composer meeting older composer. And he I spoke to him about his symphonies. And I and he was regretting to me, and Peter Menon also had the same conversation with me later, that they had wonderful first performances, but the second performances, the third performances were out the window. They couldn't get them. Not true of the Schumann third, which you speak about in your article in Gramophone. But Schumann third was known for a very long time with... Copeland's third and Harris's third as the great third American symphony, the statement. Siegmeister's third also is astonishing, which he recorded in Oslo. But I wanted, I'm just curious to know, why were these composers at that time, was it the Shostakovich influence, that they had to say something in a symphony? Well, uh, symphony was the most important form. It was symphony and string quartet, whether it be Shostakovich or or, or, or almost anyone else. Now, there were, you know, Puccini was an opera composer. <laughs> Verdi was an opera composer. It didn't mean that they weren't great composers. Of course, they were great composers. But during this time, the, the great statements you made were with symphonies and string quartets. And I mean, I remember uh, being in our New York apartment with a bunch of composers, and David Diamond was there, and Stephen Albert was there, and David was giving Stephen a lecture about how he should write a string quartet uh, because your craft is really clear in a string quartet. If, if you don't know how to get from one section to another in a string quartet, you're 
and you just have to stop and start over again. And that was that was the disease of many composers of the 80s and 90s. But um, it's it's um, it's it's uh, it is the most important musical form for us. Look look at Beethoven. Look at Mozart. Look at Haydn. I mean, string quartets and symphonies. That was the great repertoire. Of course, then it changed by the end of the 20th century. Orchestras weren't so interested in doing big symphonies anymore, and it yeah. became ensemble music, right? It was a, the group for contemporary music. It was a, a yeah. contemporary music ensemble. All those groups that then were writing conducted chamber music, basically. But the orchestras also have, at least the business people in the orchestras, for a period of time, and even with the 19 that the New York Philharmonic has just commissioned, they want short pieces. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's no question. The short pieces are the ones that get played. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if I've said it in that article, but if you write a five-minute piece, a lot of performances, 10, good, 15, eh, 20. Well, you get to be beyond 20, and <laughs> you get one performance. I mean, you know, you're, you're making a commitment. If you do the Diamond Second Symphony, which I think is one of the great masters. That's my next piece to talk 20th about. 20th century symphonic music. It's 43 minutes. You're making a big commitment. The audience is making a big commitment. And um, it's it, 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 for a conductor, it can be dangerous because you're you're unless you're at the New York Philharmonic where you're doing you know 35 weeks of subscription count, whatever it is, and you can do that and and you can make a statement and you can get it. Except that if you if you're in Boise, Idaho, with the Boise Symphony, and you're doing six or eight performances a year, and then you do the diamond second, which represents 10% of the season, some, you know, someone in the audience is going to write, well, I, I come to the concerts and 10% of it I didn't like or something like that. It's very tricky. It can be tricky, but you know what? It's not true in the wind ensemble world, as you know, at all, where they'll do a 40-minute piece by, you know, Ticelli or... Any of these the wonderful yeah, There's a whole other world because their repertoire is based on 20, 21st century music. Right. It's based basically, now it's changed, but it was always American music. Uh, you go to a wind ensemble or a band concert, That's it right. was all American music and it was all new music and it still is. And people, but let, let's go the other side of that. Except for the military bands, mm -hmm. name the, the repertory bands that are playing weekly. doesn't exist. No. The only right. one that's professional really is the Dallas Winds, which I've conducted. And how and often do, do they play concerts? I think about eight times a year. Yeah, exactly. At Meyerson, though, at the big hall. Well, I understand, but Jerry there's Junkin a conduct. between eight concerts a year and a full season. And, You're very uh, right. You're very right. But it's painful to us because, you know, part of it is uh, some of us believe, as an active composer, I believe in many ways that the symphony orchestras are glorified cover bands. Glorified cover bands, meaning like, you know, bands that do, you know, Tom, Wait, Tom Waits or, you know, or Beatles tunes or The Dead, you know, it's not The Dead, it's The Dead cover band. So what what is different about the great orchestras not being cover bands, you know, doing the same rep over and over again, because that's what fills these massive halls. It's an interesting thought. It's, a, it's also a problematic question because... Yeah. So let's assume now, look, look at the band, all right? the, the wind ensemble of the band. They don't have Beethoven, they don't have Haydn. Oh, they have yeah. so the wind, they have an octet, you know, but they, they don't have real That's major right. works by major composers of the 18th and 19th century. You know, occasional piece, okay. Uh, 
the symphony orchestra, on the other hand, has lots of Haydn, lots of Mozart, lots of Schumann and Schubert and Mendelssohn and Beethoven, you know, and the list goes on and on. And those pieces need to be played. And it's important that they get played. But it's also important that you play new music of the, of the new generation, like, like you, Michael, play your music. But then it's also important to play music from the 1950s and the 60s. You see the but problem, as now, you know. Now, now, but now you've touched on it. I come from all of the composers you mentioned. They're all my mentors. And I add P Vincent Persichetti, my teacher, and Malcolm Arnold, my teacher, as well as Siegmeister. Those three were my teachers. My time with David Diamond was instrumental in my life, very close to him as, a, as humans, as people, friends, you know. It was a, for a long time, 30-odd years. And, and in these days, my dear friend John Crilliano you know, Phil Glass, there are people that I really admire and I love to be with. And I wonder as we go forward, when I was a kid, when you, we were kids, you know, Menon was still alive, Schumann was still alive, the music was being done, and then boom, it came down. Sam Adler was recently on a, a, a program that I was on, and he was talking about that he, had, after all the music he's written, some really great stuff, he's very worried that the only thing that's going to be remembered of Samuel Adler, he's now in his 90s, are his uh, technical books of instruction. Orchestration book. Yeah, his orchestration book, like Piston's Counterpoint book, a Piston's Harmony book. And you talk about Walter Piston in your article. Major composer, major teacher. I want to switch to the Europeans if we can, because your other gramophone article is about the emigres. Which isn't out yet, but it'll be out soon. <laughs> Okay, well, I read it, so we can talk a little. <laughs> Thank you for sending it to me, but we can talk about some of those emigres. When I was the music consultant to the Holocaust Museum when it first opened up in D.C., we did concerts, obviously, of the Terracine composers and so forth, but we did also concerts of the emigres. Korngold, Ernsttoch, Castelnuovo Tedesco, you know, Berlinski. You go through the list, Goldschmidt, so forth. There were many who had to flee the Hitler site, which we talked about at the beginning. And then there is Bohuslav Martinu, who to me is astonishing for what he accomplished. Uh, in the article that will come out, you talk about his, I think, Third Symphony, am I right? Why that particular piece, Jerry? I could have picked the fourth. Those are my two favorites. But I like them all. I mean, Martineau is an interesting character because if you ask most musicians, was Martineau an American citizen? They would all say no. But Martineau became an American citizen. Martineau wrote his six great symphonies here, uh, mostly in New York, Connecticut, and uh, most of them were premiered in the United States. Kusevitsky was a big champion of Martineau's music. And Martin, it was, uh, yeah, if you go to Prague, his music is played quite often. Uh, I'm sure in London, you know, if they, if Belalavec or someone like that, of course, um, would be playing his music because they had composed, he, Martin, who had conductors who, who championed his work. Um, but the reality is that, I, I mean, for, I don't know when uh, any of our major orchestras have last played a Martin symphony. Those symphonies are terrific, but also <laughs> they're not long. They're not 45 minutes. Uh, you know, what happened? And of course, what I say in the article is that 
he wrote so much music that it's hard to, to say, oh, oh God, I want to play a piece of Martin or a piece of chamber music and you see a hundred pieces, which one should I choose? But where the symphonies are concerned, Ayo Mohino wrote six. It's not so difficult and they're all good. I mean, if I were a musician to the New York Philharmonic, I would do one a year, every year. Astonishing pieces. And people would get to know his voice and it would be quite remarkable. And it's only, they're only 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes long. You're not committing, you know, 80% of the program to those pieces. Uh, he, as you know, was a close friend of David Diamond. I, I'm not sure if they'll use it in the article, but I have a couple of miniature scores here uh, where uh, Martin wrote a very beautiful salutation to David Diamond. Oh, I have uh, to see that. David, I yeah. think, subrented his apartment near the Plaza he, Hotel. Yeah, he did. And, <laughs> you can't make uh, this stuff up. Well, what was interesting about that, of course, from David's point of view, is that Martineau was a success, right? He was a successful composer. Uh, and he uh, would spend the summers in Connecticut or some other place. And then David would be allowed to live in his apartment. I don't think he actually paid any rent. But, but he lived like there. <laughs> and I remember, as I mentioned in the article, when I was conducting the third symphony of uh, Martineau at the Czech Philharmonic a few years ago, they asked me to also do the fourth symphony of David Diamond because they were written the same year and they suspected, and they were probably right, that they were written in the same apartment. Uh, and here we have this great American who wrote his, one of his great symphonies, the fourth and Martin, one of the great Czech American uh, who, uh, who wrote the third symphony the same time. I mean, it's, it's really marvelous to see great music, but also a little sad to realize that without conductors who have a platform and who, are willing to champion those great composers, they will not be known. There is one aspect, though, which you should be very proud of. I've noticed with my own career quotes in as a composer that the thing that is most important to me is performances are wonderful, but they're over quickly, right? Recordings are forever, at least as long as there is a forever. And you're over 300 recordings are astonishing for what you've put down. You know, when you mentioned Kusevitsky, you've recorded David Diamond's Second Symphony, and it's a fabulous recording. Only recently, somebody uploaded the radio broadcast of the premiere by Kusevitsky of the David Diamond's Second Symphony. And that's had, I don't know, on YouTube, 167 views or something. Well, your recording is out there, big time, on Naxos, heard by thousands of people and also put on the radio. The fact that it's hardened into a recording has to be tremendously satisfying to you because despite the fact that, you know, the New York Philharmonic is not doing David's second symphony next year or my second symphony next year, they're recordings of both. Well, I mean, the great thing about that is when you talk to a conductor, let's say, and say, you should think about doing the Diamond Third Symphony, which is also a wonderful symphony, not as long, right? it's 25 minutes. Uh, yes, they could get a perusal score, which isn't so simple to get. You think publishers would be better about it, but they're not. They're not. Uh, and, uh, but they can go on Spotify or on YouTube and listen to it and say, oh, I'm interested. Now, the key there and is to listen to how can I say a good performance? If you don't have a good performance, I remember when Horacio Gutierrez, a wonderful pianist, great pianist, 
was asked by Bill Schumann to do his piano concerto. And Horacio came to me and said, Jerry, Bill has asked me to do this. Can we do it? And I said, sure, we did it in Vancouver. We did it in Seattle. We did it in New York. And uh, I said, you know, Horacio wants to do it. I have a great respect for him. Sure. There was a recording out at the time, which I listened to then. And had I listened to that before I said yes, I would have said no. Mm. Because the recording did not represent the piece as I believe it should be represented. And it didn't, it didn't make a case for it. When Horatio did it, boy, he made a case for it. And it was astonishing pianist. So sometimes, I'm not saying that my recordings are all great. Let's let's leave that alone. But sometimes if the recording isn't good, it can actually hurt uh, the the life of a piece. There are those pieces that (laughs) need, I shouldn't say need help, but need to be interpreted. You do the Beethoven. It's the truth of Beethoven too. When I was in high school, I played, there was a, a New York mandolin orchestra and oh they'd play God. a yearly concert at Town Hall and they would hire wind players, you know, for $5 or whatever. So right, they right. contacted me and I came, played first trumpet and this mandolin <laughs> performance of the Beethoven Fifth. You know, it was good. It represented the Beethoven, sound like the Beethoven Fifth. I mean, it was weird, but <laughs> it worked because that piece with its history and everybody knowing it, it, you know, mediocre performance, a performance by mandolins, a performance with a band, doesn't really matter. Yet your second symphony, if it if it doesn't get a passionate, committed performance, you know, it's it's a harder sell. But I have a recording, which I did with the City of Birmingham Symphony. And well, that's forever. You have to be a good conductor. Well, it <laughs> so, helps. Thank and goodness. It, it helps. <laughs> the only reason I went into conducting, really, apart from doing standard rap and loving it, was to record the, this music. You know, it's very that's helpful. Reason. And it's, that's why you should. Boulez did the same thing. There's no reason he wanted to conduct Beethoven. He, he did the standard rap because he wanted to earn, earn a living so he could write. I know really? that from him personally. It wasn't his thing. He, he kind of didn't enjoy it that much. He had a limited repertoire. And he was I'm able not sure to... he enjoyed it, but he didn't do it very well. <laughs> okay. In any event, the thing is, Jerry, I want to talk about the last thing, and then we have to... F- this half hour wonderful talk with you which is always fun you have worked a lot with the Milken archive of Jewish American music I'm on there not uh, of a solo cello piece but you recorded for example the Berlinski uh, wonderful uh, piece uh, Avodat Shabbat with I think of the Rundfunk Symphony Orchestra Berlin you also recorded the Ernst Toch um, a wonderful piece um, with the Prague Philharmonic Chorus, Czech Philharmonic, and Theodor Bekel, of all people, being the narrator. And that was the um, uh, Ernst Tuck's Cantata of the Bitter Herbs. What I love about the Milken Archive was that it hired people like you to go about the world recreating this amazing music that might have been lost otherwise. The Berlinski is one example. He was 89 years old in a wonderful documentary, which can be watched on, on, on YouTube from the Milken Archive, of coming to Berlin, this German composer who had to flee. Because German-American he, composer, Michael. I'm well, so sorry. I was going to say he had to flee to America, <laughs> kind of like the, the Schwartz family, very similar and here he goes, and he's with you, and he talks in the most wonderful words about Gerard Schwartz, to me, full of menschlichkeit, you know, 
great conductor recreating this music in a way that is thrilling. And that as a record, those two recordings are priceless. I really believe in bringing the music of Ernst Toch and, um, you know, Hermann Berlinski to the fore. And then you, to, to even make it even, even more wonderful, you recorded a piece by my teacher, Suzanne Bloch's father, Ernst Bloch, who was a Swiss-American composer called America, which talks about 1620, 1861, and, and then the future, 1926. These three incredible movements of Ernst Bloch in his piece, America. No one's doing this piece, but my God, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, you picked, you know, of course, three of my favorites. Uh, it's like, I know we're short of time now, but quickly, Berlinski was actually close to me in a bizarre way. His son was married to Julian's first, well, second major cello teacher, Toby Sachs. I mean, they divorced, but... Oh, wow. And, uh, and he... Uh, he wrote a piece for organ and, 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 and trumpets for the opening of Temple uh, Sinai in, in Seattle. Uh, I'm having him with us in Berlin talking the pieces in Hebrew and English. Mm-hmm. And of course, his first language is German. He's from Leipzig, talking to this very young uh, chorus and telling them what it means. And to see these kids, I mean, they were 20s, you know, on the edge of their chair, listening to every word of what Herman was saying. It was among the more touching experiences that I've ever had. Uh, Toch was another one of the really great composers. His symphonies are fantastic. I mean, he is really extraordinary. And this cantata for the Bitter Herbs is among the most, I remember when I did it in Prague, a friend of mine from Vienna who was working for Universal Publishing came and uh, I really was curious because we did a nice program. We did the Neo Sacred Service, I think, on that program also. Also a fabulous piece. Another piece. And so I said, I said, uh, so what do you think? Oh, no, d- d- didn't like to talk. I said, oh, really? Why? I said, well, it sounds like Richard Strauss. It does. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. <laughs> I love Richard Strauss. One of my favorites. And Ernest Bloch is among the most interesting of them all because he was such a, such a giant uh, in the, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. His Shlomo for cello and orchestra is very well known and often played. Little else. America, I, I used to think, wasn't uh, liked because it used American folk music, folk tunes. And, you know, you can use Austrian folk music or German folk or French, you're fine. Use American, Yankee, Doodle, Hell, Columbia, really? Do you want to, you really want to do that in a symphony? And, but, you know, when I've re listened to that piece, uh, recently, before I wrote the article, I was struck by how powerful it is and how wonderful it is. And what a great, I mean, you know, the, my, my, my favorite story and be the last thing that I know the time is that the piece has a chorale at the end uh, mm-hmm. uh, that he wanted to be the, an anthem. He wanted to be the, the next Star Spangled Banner. Oh, okay, that's maybe a little far-fetched. But anyway, <laughs> it wasn't. I, I was doing three concerts of it in Seattle, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Uh-huh. And his idea was you should have the audience sing this uh, this uh, anthem. So Sunday was a talk concert where I talked to the audience called Musically Speaking. And so we talked about block. We, t- we talked about the piece. I put the music of this anthem 
in the in the programs. I know people don't read music anymore. You know, it's big, my big argument about program notes. I think they need musical examples. If you say right. the first theme, you know, write it out for us, would you? Yep. Anyway, yep. so they get and I and I explain to them what's going on, mm-hmm. and I said the piece takes forty five minutes, and you'll hear this theme over and over again, and it'll be in your ear, and then members of our Seattle Symphony Chorus are going to be standing all around you, and they'll help, and then I'm going to turn around. I'm going to ask you all to stand up and then I'm going to cue you. And then let's see what happens. 3000 people were there. They sang. I mean, did everybody sing? I don't know. It's fabulous. Wow. What a sound. It was extraordinary. The, I want to talk about story yeah. is Monday and Tuesday. I was not a talk concert. I didn't speak to the audience. I inserted the music with a description of what was going to happen. A block. Yeah. Block. Yeah. They all stood. They all sang. It was, uh, I mean, it was one of the miracles of life that that worked. Final miracle I want to talk to you about in, in three paragraphs or less. <laughs> Hard Why, for me. You're an expert on this, like nobody else else that I can ever talk to about this. Why is certain music, why does certain music of certain composers last and others are buried in history? Why? Well, uh, you know, of course, you know, I'm supposed to say oh, it's impossible to say, and I've got to wait a hundred years, and all. it's not true. Uh, it has to do with: is it memorable? Does it have a memorable theme? Does it have a memorable harmony? Does it have something that the audience can take away, even after one performance? Now, it doesn't mean they have to know it exactly, but I remember. As a youngster, people would talk about Schoenberg and say, oh, you know, and I, I'm a great Schoenberg lover. Talk about Schoenberg and say, oh, the, the people just don't understand it yet. Well, you know, how many people, audience lovers, like the five pieces? I love it. You probably do too, Michael. But an audience... Actually, not. Not. Okay. An audience will not... There's not, very little to take... I mean, I can take away from it. I mean, even if you don't... If not your favorite piece, you can take stuff away from it. The five, and you, you, you can take a lot of things away. An audience... They don't get it, and they never will. And is they it never because will. sophisticated? No. Is it because they're not educated? No. It's because, in its essence, it's not memorable. Memorable music with melody, harmony, rhythm, structure, but especially melody and harmony. If you're lacking that, it's hard. Now, you could, you, you, it can be affect. You know, it can be the Up talk. To a point. The talk. Uh, uh, piece that he did just with words you know the the, the, the geographical the, piece right yeah so there's no melody there's no harmony there's That's only wonderful. rhythm and words but it's amusing and yeah. as, as is it a masterpiece no is it a great work of art no is it entertaining yes Usually. now what we try to do in the world of music we're not entertainers we are artists and we're trying to create music uh, on a high artistic mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean you can't write entertaining music. And it doesn't mean that it's not wonderful music. But on the highest level, where we're, 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 the composers are trying to write things of significance, uh, we can have a, an hour-long discussion about that word. But that's... I mean, that's too. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Do you, do you concur it with It needs my- to get under their skin. Yeah. yeah. And, and if it doesn't get... helps that a lot, too. Say again? Hearing more than once. Of course, but it needs to get in under the skin. Arthur Honegger talked about, and this is this is your life, about the presentation of new music should be dynamic and astonishing. Mm-hmm. And I will end this by saying that Gerard Schwartz is for me and for so many people a blessing and a treasure of American and world music. 
it's a, it's amazing, Jerry, what you've done and continue to do wherever you go. Well, Michael, so, so you. and I can also concur that you are a great composer and <laughs> and deserve all well, the fame you. that you're that you're getting now. Well, we're working on it, but you know, you, and you I do look forward you... to your new opera, which sounds incredible. Thank you, thank you. Well, I do too. You know, it's like anything else. I'll show up when they premiere it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jerry, again. You've been my guest on Interplay. Gerard Schwartz, thank you so much for your wisdom, your guidance, and your love for everything you do and all the people that come and, come and meet you. It's astonishing. Again, I use that word, what you've accomplished and what you do on a daily basis. Thank, thank you, you so thank much. you, thank you. Great being with you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Gerard Schwartz. This is Michael Shapiro for Interplay Conversations and Music. <laughs>